Hi folks, welcome back to Bibliology. This is Patrick. This is the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars about their recent work and its implications for communities of faith. Today on the podcast, you'll get to hear my recent conversation with Dr. Scott Stripling, co-author of a dialogue on the historical Exodus that just came out recently entitled The Exodus by Views. Dr. Stripling has a PhD from Veritas International University and he serves as director of the Archaeological Institute at the Bible Seminary in Katy, Texas. He has directed and is directing archaeological excavations at various sites, including Kirbit el Makader and Shiloh. Now, before we get into the podcast, I know some of you may be confused that a book with such a title exists. Five views on the Exodus? Um, aren't there just two views? It happened or it didn't? Well, it's not that simple, so... The biblical account of the Exodus, the story of Israelites escaping slavery in Egypt, is quite difficult to pinpoint on the historical timeline, not least because the Pharaoh is not mentioned by name. As well as this, the account is written with a lack of precise historical detail, which is of course a common feature of ancient history and storytelling. Um, to complicate matters, there are various archaeological trails in ancient Egypt that could be used to support an Exodus account. But of course, interpreting archaeological finds is a notoriously difficult business. Um, So this has given rise to a variety of views in regards when the Exodus took place and whether it occurred exactly as described in the Bible. And Dr. Stripling's view is known as the early date view. Um, I encourage you that if this is a topic that interests you, feel free to buy the book. It's in the description, of course, and it's a thrilling dialogue. With that said, on to the podcast and this conversation. Stripling, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. I'm glad to be with you, Patrick. I'm just going to start with a set of brief, fun questions to establish that you're a human being, not just an introverted scholar. First off, um, you were born and raised in Texas, and of course, you're an archaeologist. So has, has the hottest weather you've ever experienced, has it been there in Texas, or has it been in one of these Middle Eastern uh. Uh, digs? Very good question. Well, Texas and uh, Israel, Jordan is pretty much on the same uh, longitude. So um, like a Texas summer is very similar to what an Israeli summer would be. So, um, but working out in the heat, I don't normally do that in Texas. So I would have to say it would be in the Middle East for sure. And I hope you wouldn't be getting people getting sunstroke and all that out in the no, we've only had one incidence of that all these years. Uh, we're, we start really early in the morning to avoid the heat, and we put up sunscreens and do all that we can. Then we stop when the real, you know, heat of the day comes. But uh, it's always a challenge, you know, when you've got people who aren't used to physical labor, maybe, that are doing all those things outdoors. So we're always preaching drink water, drink water, drink water. As an archaeologist, how often do people bring up Indiana Jones as a topic of conversation <laughs> with you? Uh, well, this is the first time today, but not the first time this week. Okay. Uh, so fairly often. Yeah. yeah. Right. You know, something about that movie just captured the public imagination, and it's almost hard to resist making those uh, comparisons. Yeah. Okay. And last fun question here. Um, what is the most exciting archaeological discovery relating to the Bible in the past 10 years, in your opinion? Boy, we've had quite a few. You know, we're excavating at Shiloh right now, and before that we were at 
Kerbedel Makater, Makatir, which was likely biblical AI of Joshua 7 and 8, biblical I. So there are a number of synchronisms, but maybe at Shiloh, we're, we're excavating what appears to be a matrix for the tabernacle sacrificial culture, you know, with ceramic palm granites and altar horns and, you know, bone deposit and storage rooms. So kind of all that is really um, synchronizing beautifully with the biblical text. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I, I I think I saw in your academia uh, account that you published an article on was it a pomegranate in mm-hmm. so so what's the significance of finding a pomegranate? Well, uh, the the pomegranate was one of the seven sacred fruits for the Israelites. When you come into the land, you'll have these, but it was only the pomegranate that went into the presence of God. So in the holy of holies, in the tabernacle and in the temple, you had pomegranates on the hems of the priest's garments, and then also adorning the structures themselves, only the pomegranate. So of all the fruits, that's the one that represented the presence of God. So they've only been found in Israel in the past at Levitical sites, at places like Yoknam, for example. So finding them at Shiloh, where the Bible indicates the tabernacle was, is of some significance. Okay, yeah, that is that is interesting. Okay. Today, we're going to be talking about a newly released dialectical book on the Exodus that you've contributed to. It's uh, the Exodus Five Views, and it's with Zondervan. Just to begin with, could you could you briefly talk about the lay of the land when it comes to historical approaches to the Exodus and uh, who we have representing each position in this book? Sure. Uh, well, there are more than five views, but you know, Zondervan had to had to limit it to that. Um, I wrote chapter one, which was on the early date or the biblical date of the Exodus, which is the mid fifteenth century BC, and then James Hofmeyer writes chapter two on the thirteenth century date of the Exodus, and those are the two dominant views: either a uh, fifteenth century date, which is very clearly the biblical date, the thirteenth century date uh, advocated by Hofmeyer is more coming at it from an archaeological perspective, although I think you have both arguments can be made for both views. Um, And then you have um, Feynman and Rinsberg and Hindel presenting different views. Hindel's is more of a mythological view of the Exodus uh, as as memory, cultural memory. Um, Rinsberg takes a, a 12th century view of the Exodus and then Feynman takes a 13th century view like Hoffmeyer, but he makes a big point of Moses being a Levite and that he was a Hyksos and he was a Levite and develops that whole idea. The idea of the series, Patrick, is that each, each chapter is written and then the other authors get to respond or critique, and then you get to respond to their critiques. And so it's a pretty good way for, for folks to understand the topic. I've read Zondervan, you know, Counterpoint series before. And this seems to be a new thing that they have where after the the critique you get, that you get to respond to, to that critique. Is that a new thing? I'm not sure that they're doing, but... Uh, it's yeah, certain- and it's a good thing, don't you think? Because if not, somebody could make an accusation that, you know, wasn't true. Uh, like in my case, um, I was accused of miscounting something. And in fact, I was right and the other person was wrong. And I was able to point it out in the in the rebuttal. So. Yeah, no, it's it's and it's definitely... Uh, better in terms of it, it feels actually feels like a dialogue you know it doesn't yeah. doesn't feel just like views are being given you, you touched on um ronald hendel's approach now that is essentially a view that the exodus is mythical 
And uh, if you go into, you know, the the quirky world of the internet, that would be the position that most internet skeptics hold to. But obviously, Handel's formulation is a lot more sophisticated than that. So could you briefly explain why you aren't convinced by this approach? Well, it's not that I don't believe that there is mythology in the sense of mythos being the Greek word for story. I mean, these are our stories, the question is, are they based in reality, in a, in a time, in a space, spatial reality? And I think that they are. Um, Hindle comes at it more of saying these are eteleological. They're stories that are written with a morality tale to them. You know, this is what happens to good people and this is what happens to, to bad people. And that it's, while there may be kernels of truth, it's largely an invented um, history. I, th I see too many synchronisms. I mean, number one, the cultural impact that it made upon the Jewish people and how it was remembered in the Passover, carried on through the biblical record and then the post-biblical record. But the synchronisms that exist, for example, that I deal with in chapter one between the event and as it's recorded in the Bible and how they all give us the same date and time over a very long period of time says to me that it's more than cultural memory. At the other extreme from myth, you have those who would take the Exodus account to essentially be a CCTV, you know, camera. If you, if you went back to Egypt, that is exactly what you would see. So that there really were this many Israelites who made the Exodus. Um, do you think there are problems with that approach as well? Or uh, do you think, you know, that that's a legitimate view to take? Well, I mean, anyone's view is it is their view, so it has value in in and of itself. But the, there are problems um, with taking language that was not intended to be literal and making it literal, and also with uh, syntactical meanings. So we have a, a lexical range of words today that is far different from from what they had then and there. And the key word, as you I'm sure found, a number of the authors dealt with this is the word elef. Uh, the Hebrew word for 1,000, but translated in other places as clan or military unit. So you had 600 or 605 elephim in Israel. Does this mean you had 605,000 fighting men, um, or does it mean 605 clans or units of 5 to 10 each, you know, 12,000 or so fighting men, which still makes you a pretty tough army to deal with, and you know, 40,000, 50,000 uh, Israelites. The problem is that if you take this through to the other end and you enter into Canaan with four or five or six million people, we know what the demographics of Canaan were in the late Bronze Age. And there's no, no one would argue that there were more than 250, 300,000 Canaanites at the most, probably a lot less than that. So if you're coming in with, you know, five million people and there's 250,000 people who are there, where's the miracle? So... You can't have it but you're on both ends the same way. So in my view, it's, it's a small number of Israelites that are exiting Egypt, which results in greater glory to God. Yeah, and I think another point that um, I've heard, uh, I think it's Michael Heiser bring up, is that in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, it actually says that the Israelites were the, the least populous right. group. No, it's, uh, yeah. well, it may say it in Numbers, but Deuteronomy 7.7, 7, God says, I didn't choose you because you were greater in number, but I chose you because you were lesser in number than all the other nations. Well, we know what the numbers of those other nations were, and they were very small. I mean, look at the Amarna letters. That's 14th century, and in the Amarna letters, the 
the client kings of these city-states in Canaan are begging for Pharaoh to send them 30 soldiers to protect their city. 30 soldiers. <laughs> so we're talking about small places. Getting on to, to your, your own view, you hold to an early date of the Exodus. On this view, who was the Pharaoh of the Exodus? And does what we know about this his character from external sources corroborate well with the biblical account, in your view? Sure. I, I would take Amenhotep II as the Pharaoh of the Exodus, assuming that we have a high chronology. I mean, we our chronology, the ancient world, we can't be positive on. So we have high chronology, we have low chronology. So I'm, I'm taking a high chronology, and I then, based on that, would argue Amenhotep II. If one were to take a low chronology, then one might argue for uh, Moses III as the Pharaoh of the Exodus. So those are the two primary candidates in the 18th dynasty. So we're, we we have to be, you've got five biblical passages and then a lot of archaeological evidence that all puts you in the mid-15th century BC for the Exodus. And that's either Amenhotep II, if one's taking high chronology, or Tutmosis III, if one's taking low chronology. And so essentially we're saying we, we've got a, an offset of 20 to 25 years in here that we're not certain on the rule of, of kings. We don't have certain fixed points. If the, the sun was rising at a, at a certain point in time, now we're trying to determine um, if we're going forward or backward in time from that, that point. So um, we do discuss that in the book at some, at some length on the high and the low chronology, but I think that the weight of evidence supports the high chronology, and Amenhotep II is a, really an ideal fit because the Pharaoh who precedes him has a very long reign. The Bible says that, and there's only one king with a long reign in the 18th dynasty. That's Tutmosis III who precedes Amenhotep II. Why do you think um, that that the Israelites aren't mentioned in these um, contemporary Egyptian sources that we have from this uh, this period in history? Okay, the Egyptians were um, very reticent to talk about anything that painted them in an unfavorable light. Um, they used a lot of hyperbole in their writings. Pharaoh spoke and his enemies melted like wax before him, you know, for example. So it's very grand and prophetic. So the fact that something that brought shame upon them was not recorded should not su surprise us. Um, we may, in fact, have some mentions. Um, if, if you look at Doug Petrovich's new work on Hebrew as the oldest alphabet, you'll see a potential mention of the name Moses, uh, for example, we also have the name Ahisamak, who's mentioned as a builder of the tabernacle. Um, and we have that same name also in Sinai 375a from a mining camp in the Sinai. We have the soul of hieroglyph from the time of Am Amenhotep III. So it's just one generation after the Exodus. And it says on the soul of hieroglyph, the land of the Shasu of Yahweh. So you mean by the 14th century, we already have a land where people worship Yahweh. Hmm. And in the book, I basically make the argument and explain why. I think that that's referring to Israel at that point. Um, we have the Berlin pedestal, <clears throat> which has the hieroglyphs on it that um, I think also point to a 15th century presence. So there is some epigraphic, glyptic material that does point to ancient Israel. As far as I remember, um, there was um, there, there was a lot of discussion in, in the book in terms of that evidence you yes. suggested. Um, 
what 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 were um what were the complaints well not complaints obviously the the disagreements that the that the other scholars had in terms of that evidence that you offered and i suppose you can feel free to respond to that too you know um <laughs> well that's a good question you know hoffmeyer did not really challenge any of my uh uh supports. He just said that he thought that the weight of evidence pointed to a 13th century based on his reading of um, Exodus 111, that the store city of Ramesses uh, indicates that it must be in the 13th century BC. I would just say that I think that's merely an anachronism. It's an updating of a name. The name was changed to Ramesses and a later writer is updating it so that the reader knows what he's what he's talking about. Um, so Hoffmeyer doesn't really challenge any of the material that I present. Some of the other um, writers do. Um, trying to think of a cogent example I could share with you. Um, fortunately, I was able to, to respond to those. I don't think anybody directly on a substantive level took on the specific things I was saying. Uh, maybe the Berlin pedestal, um, that it wasn't dated to when I was saying that it was dated, but all I was doing was quoting other scholars, Peter van der Veen and other scholars that have placed it and dated it to the uh, to the 18th Egyptian dynasty. Yeah, and, and obviously when, when it comes to dating those sort of things, there's naturally going to be disagreement, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about things that are very old and where they're fragmentary often, and we're trying to make large, draw large conclusions based on small amounts of evidence. The things, though, that yeah. I talk about, Patrick, that none of the other authors talk about is a, a presumption of innocence for the Bible, <laughs> that uh, the historical record that we have in the Bible, I believe, is reliable. And I offer many examples of why I think it is because of those synchronisms. But I'm approaching this like I would take the literature from Egypt, the literature from Mesopotamia, and I would take it seriously in trying to draw a historical picture. And I would take the Bible the same way. I think the other writers, possibly with the exception of Hoffmeyer, are seeing the Bible as an guilty until proven innocent <laughs> instead of innocent until proven guilty. That's been kind of the, the typical suspicion of all modern uh, critical sure. scholars to the Bible, yeah. Speaking of, you know, contemporary scholarly circles, probably the most popular historical approach to the Exodus um, would be the Levite hypothesis. And um, that's advocated in this book by Peter Feynman. Um, but it was also, and I've, I've read the book in question, it's famously defended by Richard Elliott Friedman. Um, so why do you think this view is so popular um, among, especially among um, scholars and um what would prevent you from embracing it? I don't know that I would say that it's popular among scholars. Could be um, wrong there. In my experience, it's more popular among um, in a popular audience, not an academic audience. Um, he's making a pretty. Uh, first of all, there's no dispute that Moses was a Levite. Everybody agrees with that. The Bible says Moses was a Levite. The controversial thing is that he's saying Moses was a Hyksos, and that's where it becomes very controversial. Um, and it's sort of a circular reasoning, in my view, that that he uses uh, a, a type of syllogism. So Mo, the, the Israelites were led out of Egypt by a Levite. Moses was a Levite. Therefore, he must have been a Hyksos. It's a hard argument to, to nail down. And none of the authors, not only me, but none of the others, I think, let him skate on that. Mm. He's on thin ice. 
I don't think Feynman mentioned this uh, as well, but a lot of the a lot of the arguments for that, I think depend on something like um, the the documentary hypothesis, which is sort of the view that the that the first five books of the Bible are kind of a mishmash of different sources, I suppose. Um, Correct. So they are um, essentially saying that the Bible did not reach the state that we would know it until the Hellenistic period, or or maybe the days of Josiah, but most of them would say till the till the Hellenistic period. What I point out contra that is that we have portions of scripture that are from the 7th and 8th century BC, uh, written portions. Uh, and we're not talking about textual copies. I'm talking about the priestly blessing, the, the silver scroll from Ketef Hinnom. Um, I'm talking about Pithos B from Ketilad al-Jrud, which is 8th century BC. You have portions of Exodus and Numbers. We have the Balaam inscription, 8th century, 9th century BC from Jordan, from Derala in Jordan, um, telling the same story that you have in the Bible of, of Balaam. So I don't see how we can argue that the text did not reach its form until the Hellenistic period when we have 8th century BC written examples of it. Mm. I'm just thinking, uh, could you briefly explain uh, who the Hyksos were? Because obviously that's... Uh, that's a that's a crucial point uh, uh, to Feynman's argument. So the Hyksos were foreign invaders. We often call them shepherd kings or Asiatics that come into Egypt and they ultimately take over uh, Egypt. And they are then expelled from Egypt. And when they are expelled, they migrate, for the most part, back toward uh, Canaan. And we can find this in the archaeological record. So like when we have Hyksos kings, uh, we're talking about 16th, 17th century BC, primarily. And we'll find their scarabs. They're very easy to identify. We find a lot of them at, at Shiloh and at Kermit el Makader. They're expelled. The Israelites remain in Egypt. And so later we have an exodus. Now, some have, and even ancient writers, have conflated the two events. Um, and this is, I think, Feynman makes this mistake. He's misreading Manetho. Manetho is a third century BC historian from Egypt. And um, Josephus conflates what Manetho is saying. He, he quotes Manetho just fine, but then he conflates or he confuses the two events of the Hyksos ex expulsion and the Israelite exodus. And so I think that's the rabbit hole that Feynman goes down. We've been talking about uh, the exodus so far, but something that goes hand in hand with this whole um, issue is um, the, the subsequent conquest of Canaan. Putting aside the ethical concerns for the time being, obviously there are challenging questions there. How would your own approach tie in with the archaeological data and controversy that surrounds this period of Israel's history? Well, first of all, we have archaeological evidence from Egypt itself. So <clears throat> at ancient Avaris, excavated by Manfred Betok's team, we have evidence of a mid-15th century BC abandonment of the site. And Betok is very clear that they are Semitic people who were there, and then they abandoned the site in the mid-15th century BC. <laughs> I mean, that's when the Bible says that the, the exodus happened. So beginning in Egypt and then coming into the Promised Land, we have, of course, Jericho and I, Hatzor, Shiloh, a lot of sites that are mentioned in that conquest narrative. So I, I think that we have evidence at Jericho, at Ai, and at Hatzor of destruction levels 
that date to the mid 15th century BC. I give the exact stratum and substrata and everything in the in the book. People can look that up. But um, at Shiloh itself, where I'm excavating now, I think that we are uh, uncovering a matrix that points to um, an occupation uh, around the year 1400. So if they exit in the mid 15th century BC, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years, and then there's a six or seven year conquest that puts them arriving at Shiloh right about that time. We're also doing extensive research on Mount Ival. In fact, I led a project dealing with Mount Ival, and so I deal with that in the book as well, Joshua's Altar, and how we date that on Manival. So I think that rightly interpreted, the archaeological record is not at all in conflict with the biblical record. You have said at this point that um, the Bible itself dates the Exodus to the uh, 15th century uh, BC. So um, there are other Christians in this volume who would uh, uh, maybe take uh, qu quite a strong view of uh, uh, inerrancy or that type of thing, but they would still... Um, they would still hold that the Exodus happened in the 12th century uh, BC, and uh, yeah, and and so how would they square, you know, the the Bible's um, historical, the Bible's own historical record with this differing differing view? Um, it all begins and ends with First Kings six one. So um, I deal with it, then every one of the other authors have to respond, and they do respond to what I'm saying about 1 Kings 6.1. So let's talk about 1 Kings 6.1. In the 480th year, after the Israelites exited from Egypt, Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord. So we all agree, believe it or not, on more or less within a year or two on when Solomon built his temple, 967 uh, B.C., so if we take 967 and we add 480 to it, 479 actually, because it says in the 480th year, so it had not completed it, Being precise. then 479 plus 967 gives you 1446. So what would they say is your question? How, would, how do people get around that? Basically, they're going to say that the writer was wrong. He didn't know what he was talking about or he was trying to give you an idealized period of time of 480 years, what, what Hoffmeyer calls a distanzangaven, an idealized period of time. I argue that that's ridiculous, because if he wanted to do that, he wouldn't have said in the 400, it even gives you the month and the day. So it's 479 and X number of months and X number of days. If he was trying to give you a round number, 480 years, he certainly would not have, have done that. Then they have to do some really fancy math. You think math is complicated today. Um, 480 is actually divided by 12. So it's 40 idealized generations. But a generation is not actually 40 years. It's 25 years. So what the writer was trying to say, they would argue, is 12 times 25 equals 300. And so we should be using 300 to get us to the 13th century B.C., that is very painful to do, and I don't think we can do that to the to the biblical text, but that's what uh, my friends do. Would you agree that idealized formulas uh, in terms of numbers, do they happen in the Bible at all? <clears throat> I can't think off the top of my head of an example in the Bible, but there are some examples in ancient Near Eastern literature of, of them happening. Okay, okay. Moving on a little bit to sort of um, general concerns surrounding, you know, the historicity of the Bible, and in general, that's obviously what we've been discussing. 
um, there's something known as um, the maximalist and uh, minimalist debate. So could you briefly outline what this is and what what camp do you um, do you fall into or perhaps have debates moved on from this that sort of scholarly attitude? Uh, it exists, so I don't mind using those terms. Uh, the minimalist camp, uh, the Bible is guilty until proven innocent. Uh, they're going to say that there, there may be some historical realities in the Bible, but that by and large, we should not take it as, as a reliable historical text. So Ronald Handel's approach? Yeah, oh, yes. Handel, yeah, he would even be further out than most of the minimalists. Okay. Um, yeah, from an archaeological standpoint, think maybe is Trofinkelstein. Um, <clears throat> they use the Bible when it agrees with their position, and when it doesn't, they say it's not reliable, which is a difficult debate to have with someone. Um, on the other end, we have um, maximalists who say you know everything mentioned in the Bible is literally true. Well, I mean, we can't say everything is literally true in my view because it wasn't written literally. Everything wasn't written literally. We have a lot of metaphorical material within the genres of, of the Bible. But what I would say, leaning to the maximalist side, is that everything that was intended to be literal should be read as, as literal. <clears throat> and many times we are lacking understanding and further excavation uh, clarifies it with the passage of time. Take the House of David. You know, the minimalist made such a big deal until 25, 30 years ago that there was no reference outside the Bible to the historical David. And, you know, and then now we have the House of David inscription plus a couple of others. And and isn't it true that people would still say, well, that doesn't show that David existed. There was just a place called the House of David. <laughs> That's only the, only the way out extremes would yeah. argue that. Okay, okay. So... In that respect, almost all scholars do believe that there was a historical David, whether they're critical or minimalist or whatever. Uh, sure. Now, they might argue, take Finkelstein, he might say that, well, yes, David existed, but he was a, a chieftain in the backwater of Judea, you know, just very insignificant, but he would no longer argue that he did not exist. Okay. So which, if any, of the four views in, in this book that you've contributed to, um, would you be most receptive to? Besides my own? Uh, well, yeah, any of the other four views. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that, I had not anticipated that question, Patrick. Um, I think that Hoffmeyer um, comes from a more biblical approach. Now, he's doing that funny math. This The Stansangaben was 1 Kings 6.1, but apart from that, I think he's taking the Bible closer to the way that I would take it as a reliable historical document. Okay. In terms of Dr. Gary Rensberg, mm -hmm. his, his would also be, I suppose, would it be a similar approach to Hoffmeyer because it's also a, a late date of the Exodus? Well, it, Rensberg puts you in the 12th century, mm. and Hoffmeyer has you in the 13th century. So here's an interesting um, I'll give you an interesting example. So Rinsberg uh, takes me to account for using First uh, Chronicles six thirty three through thirty seven, which is a complete genealogy. It's eighteen generations from the time of Moses. It's the worship leaders from the time of Moses to the time of David. Eighteen are listed, and then to get to Solomon, we add one more, which would be nineteen. <clears throat> and then we all agree that a 
typical generation in the Bible is 25 years. So 19 times 25 is 475. You add that to 967, and it puts you in the mid-15th century. So I'm arguing from that genealogy that it's a synchronization with 1 Kings 6.1. Rendsburg says you can't do that <clears throat> because uh, genealogies um, should be taken as they're normally uh, uh, expanded, not truncated. So he takes the genealogy in Ruth, which is five generations, and that's how he gets to the 12th century. Um, and he uses an oral modern African tribe that is an oral culture. So he takes an anthropological approach, which is fine. The only problem is that the, the biblical people were not African, they're not modern, and it wasn't just an, an oral culture. Hmm. Just the final question I would probably ask is, you know, if you're approached by, you know, a skeptical person who says, I think the whole the whole Bible's, you know, a myth, that kind of thing, what would you what would you start with with a with a person like that? Well, if they're fair minded, and a lot of people are, um, yeah. I would ask them to read my chapter because I deal with hard archaeology. Patrick, I'm an archaeologist, okay? Yeah. And I happen to also have have a belief system, a faith system, and I don't think I have to bifurcate those. And I don't think that one um, conflicts with the other. So I would ask them to read my chapter, look at the hard archaeological evidence. I'm the only one of the authors that puts in here, you know, stratum 11, substratum this. And I mean, I'm very specific in the detail um, critique my argument on the basis of the hard data that I give, not because it happens to coincide with the Bible uh, or to be uh, synchronous with the Bible. Yeah, thank you for uh, coming on the show anyway. Greatly appreciate you uh, taking time to lay out this uh, evidence, and it's been great talking to you. Great. Well, thanks for having me on, Patrick. <laughs>